Today we will be continuing in the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, if you would turn there with me, and we'll be in chapter 10 and looking at the second portion of chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. So Hosea chapter 10, starting in verse 9. And as you get there, you know, if you plant tomato seeds, what do you expect to grow? If you plant cucumbers, if you plant potatoes, what do you expect to grow? We know that the thing we plant is the thing we expect to grow, right? So if we plant tomato seeds, we want tomatoes. If we plant cucumbers, we want cucumbers. Now, some of us may question, why in the world would you plant a tomato or why would you plant a cucumber? Uh, surely there are better things out there. I may or may not agree with you in that regard, but right, we can all agree upon potatoes, perhaps. Right, this is fundamental, though, and it goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation. Look at Genesis 1.12. Genesis 1.12 says, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Right, so this is what God did in creation. Right, He made it so. He created the world this way, that tomatoes bear tomatoes, that apples bear apples, each according to its kind. And God made it, and it was good. Now, this does not only apply to the things uh, of fruits and vegetables. What we sow in our lives will grow in kind. We are all planting something that will bear fruit. And the question we must ask, ask ourselves today is, what are we planting? What is it we are planting? This is an issue that God addresses with the people of the northern kingdom of Israel because they were planting something in their society, in their lives, and it was bearing fruit. Today I want us to see in our passage in Hosea that God promises that we will reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow. So let's go to the scripture and let us read Hosea chapter 10 starting in verse 9. And this is the word of the Lord. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. 
as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And this is the word of the Lord. We're not done yet with God addressing the issues within the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the first part of chapter 10, God promises that he will remove their religious cults, he will remove their king, he will remove their capital, that the institutions, the things that make up Israel as a nation are going to be demolished, uh, removed, destroyed, and indeed even the people are going to be sent off into exile. The promise of God unto them is that collapse is coming. The time is coming, says the Lord, when everything the people uh, hold dear is going to be dashed to pieces. They'll be removed uh, with it. And today we see in our passage God continuing to press upon them, press them to consider, to see their sinfulness and entreating them to return to him. We don't know exactly when Hosea is preaching this message. It could be during the time of uh, the king Hosea, which is the last of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. So this would be quite a late date, uh, quite towards the end of Hosea's life, probably. And what we can ascertain, at least in the text, is that war has not yet come. So there's time of relative peace. But notice that I said war has not yet come. It is coming. And God promises, and we see that here even in our own passage. So as we turn to our passage today, let us see first the now. So what is going on in the now in verses 9 and 10? 9 and 10, the now. And the scripture begins here, right? From the days of Gibeah you have sinned. Now, we have this reference to Gibeah back in chapter 9, verse 9. And the story of what happened in Gibeah is found in Judges chapter 19 and following. So, Judges 19 and following. And so, just briefly to recap that for us this, today as we consider uh, what is God referring to here from the days of Gibeah. Well, in the days of Gibeah... Uh, there was a Levite man who was traveling through. He had actually gone, his concubine ran off back to uh, her parents' house, and he went back and retrieved her. And as they were journeying back to, to his house, to where he lived uh, with his concubine, uh, they're on their journey, night's approaching, and they could either stay in a town of foreigners or stay in a town of the tribes of Israel. And the Levite says, no, we're not going to stay in this foreign town because surely they would meet trouble there. Instead, we're going to go to one of the tribes of Israel. So they're traveling through and they come upon a Benjamite town in the Benjamite town of Gibeah. Surely they will be safe, safer there. Well, they get to town and they don't find any hospitality. Nobody's really talking to them. Nobody's inviting them into their home until at last this one man, this good man, comes to them and says, come with me. You can stay at my place. There's plenty of uh, of everything. Uh, come and get settled. Well, the sun begins to set. They're getting settled. 
And then the men of the town of Gibeah come to where the Levite is staying and bang on the door and say, bring out the Levite, send him out. We want to know him. And that's the Old Testament euphemism for we want to have sex with this man. Send out the Levite. And there's this back and forth a little bit. And eventually the Levite pushes out his concubine uh, so that the townsmen can sate their lusts on her. And so they do. And all night long she is abused and raped. And in the morning... As the Levite gets ready to go, he opens the door and there's his concubine and he says, come on, get up, let's go. But she's dead. She doesn't move. She's dead. She's been abused to death. The Levite returns home. He carves up the corpse of his concubine and he sends 12 pieces to all the tribes with a message. This has to be dealt with. And you can look at Judges 19 and following to see how that transpired, what transpired after that. The tribes do gather against Benjamin in the town of Gibeah. And this is really a tale of heinous sin. And then we come back to Hosea chapter 10. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned. And so what God is saying through the prophet Hosea is, from the days of Gibeah, you've done the same thing. You've been wicked, wicked adultery, wicked evil, religious unfaithfulness. Not only that, but what else do we know of Gibeah? Gibeah is also the place of Saul, King Saul. And so not only is Gibeah tied to this issue of heinous sin back in the day of the judges, but moving forward to the time of the kings, we have King Saul. So it's a military town, right? It's a political town. And what do we know of King Saul? What do we make of him? Well, he is a man who trusted in his own strength, trusted in his own wisdom, and did not have a heart to follow after God. Right? We know that that's the contrast between him and King David, right? When God uh, seeks to have another king anointed, David, he says, I'm seeking a man after my own heart, not like King Saul. And so all this should sound familiar to us because what, what God is doing is saying, from the days of Gibeah, Gibeah here is a type, it's a pattern. And what's it a pattern of? Wickedness, unfaithfulness, relying upon oneself and not on God. And doesn't that all sound familiar to what the people of the northern kingdom of Israel are doing in Hosea's day? From the days of Gibeah, the people have sinned, and there they stand. Right of the ESV says, there they have continued. Nothing has changed. We might go Ecclesiastes here, right? And say, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Now, as we look at verse 9, the last part of the verse, uh, the ESV renders this a question. Shall not the war against the unjust 
or the children of injustice overtake them in Gibeah. The King James Version proposes this as a statement. So there's two ways that we can understand this, right? A question or a a statement and understand there that back in the original Hebrew text, they don't have question marks and they don't have periods, right? So it's just the text. Same thing in the Greek. So it's up to us to understand the context uh, as we translate it, as, as scholars translate this to understand, is it a question or is it a statement? The King James Version proposes a statement that says something, uh, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. And either way we understand this, whether we understand it as a statement or a question, the meaning seems to be this. The people never learned. The people did not learn. They didn't understand the warning of what happened in the days of Gibeah, and they learned nothing from it. Right? God was clear in his judgment against the evil wickedness that occurred in the days of Gibeah. God called the tribes to go against the town and the people of Benjamin. And yet they didn't grasp that sowing sin reaps punishment. And so what does God say? Verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them. God will chastise his people. He will no longer spare the rod. There are a great many who think that their sin has no consequence. And maybe that's you. Maybe you don't think that sin has consequence. Maybe you don't see it in your life. Maybe you sin and sin and sin and say, God doesn't really do anything, so he must not really care. Perhaps that you think that God is ignorant. You sin in the privacy of your own room, and so nobody else knows. And we use that common phrase uh, that we use in our culture, right? Well, it's not hurting anyone else. Why does God care about what I'm doing when it doesn't hurt anyone else? When the Lord desires to bring punishment for sin, he will. We have to understand that. God will not be patient forever. He will deal with you. And he may be not letting you feel the immediate consequences of your sins in order to give you a time to repent. God is merciful towards us. And that mercy is not licensed to continue sinning but it is opportunity to repent. It's a period of calm to get us to wake up and change our ways. And if you do not, he will bring chastisement. Now, let me say this. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. That is to say, there is no final condemnation for sins that we commit if we are in Christ. But understand this, that there is discipline. Discipline is promised. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It is far better that we not experience chastisement from the Lord. It is far better that we learn the lessons that we need to learn from the Lord without discipline. But it is also far better to be chastised than not. It is far better to be disciplined than not. The author of Hebrews there tells us, right? Discipline is for the sons. And if you don't receive discipline, you're not a son. And understand, friend, that God disciplines the one he loves. And for those that are outside of Christ Jesus, there is only the terrifying reality of judgment. God will bring to bear justice in your life. He will deal with your sin. You will suffer greatly for it. For a time here, you may enjoy seeming peace, but understand that without the sacrifice of Christ, without Christ paying the penalty of your sins, you will pay the penalty of your sins. You will suffer God's wrath hereafter, and there will never be any peace. And so what remains for you is to wake up, pay attention to the warnings of the scripture, right? Don't be like the people of Israel who missed the warnings, who, who just were oblivious to it. Turn from your sin into God. This day, don't wait. God will chastise his people. Right? When I please, I will discipline them and nations shall be gathered against them. War is coming to the land because of their unwillingness to repent. War is coming to the land, says, when they are bound up for their double iniquity. They will be shackled for their double sin. And it's probably, this, this idea of double sin is probably in reference to the extremeness of the wickedness in Hosea's day. All right, you thought Gibeah was bad? You should be in Hosea's day. Makes Gibeah look like a, a holy roller fest, right? Makes it look like it's, you know, another day, another good day in church. And God will deal with it all. This is the now. This is what's going on in the now. And let us look next in verses 11 and 12 in the cow and the plow, the cow and the plow. And we begin in verse 11, and God describes his people with this metaphor, right, that Ephraim was a trained calf or a trained heifer. And let me just say as a side note to husbands, children, uh, do not ever uh, call your wife or mother a cow. Don't use that metaphor, right? Just stay away from it. Might be easy out on the farm. Don't do it. But God describes his people this way, right? He describes them uh, of as being a heifer. And this is not something new in the book of Hosea, right? We see it elsewhere. But, but the picture that we get that God is giving us here is, is this idea of gentleness. God treated his people gently. So the first part we see is 
Ephraim, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And, and remember, Ephraim is, is uh, a word here to describe Israel. Israel was a trained heifer that loved to thresh or loved to uh, tread out the corn. And the law provided uh, that when an ox was threshing, that you would not muzzle it. So the idea, the picture that God is giving us here is that Ephraim is like this ox that kind of just leisurely strolls around on the wheat to break it apart, to, to, to break open the, the wheat. And he's just going around doing his thing. And every once in a while, whenever he's kind of hungry, whenever he wants a snack, he can bend down. He can, he can get some, get some grain. It's this kind of leisurely snack filled work. It's work. But it's really gentle work. The second thing we see here is, uh, he says, God says, and I spared her fair neck. And this word here, fair, could be like a good neck. She had a strong neck. And what did God do with it? God could have put a heavy yoke of burden on her. But instead, he spared it. He gave her a light yoke. Again, this idea is just gentleness. He was gentle with her, right? And, and as we think of the people of Israel, right, they, they really had bounty. They had good. They lived in a land flowing with milk and honey. Also, if you see a river of milk, don't drink it. That, sounds, that's, that seems bad, right? It's dangerous. It's not pasteurized. It's not refrigerated. But, but the people had bounty, they had good. In the last great speech of Joshua, in Joshua 24, he points out what the people had inherited from God. Listen to the description of the land here, right? Joshua 24, 13. Joshua 24, 13. I gave you a land, right? God is saying this. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What's God saying? God's saying, you came into a land that was cultivated, where there were already orchards and vineyards. You didn't have to do the hard work of setting them up, of clearing the land, of getting rid of all the bad stuff. and, And you didn't have to set them up and you didn't have to struggle and strive and, and see if whether or not, uh, the olive tree would take root. Or if it would die, you didn't have to do any of that. You didn't have to build the cities. Instead, I gave you those things. So when we think of the people of Israel, they really did have it good. God was good to his people. But we contrast this with what the people were now. And what were the people in the time of Hosea? We could go back to Hosea 2.8 and we see Hosea 2.8 And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. The people thought that their good bounty, their produce, their prosperity had come through false worship to false gods. They had it good. And now God says, notice what he says in verse 11. Judah must plow, 
or Judah must ride. Jacob must harrow for himself. Go back up. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. What's all this saying? They had it easy. No more. Now, as they're going off into exile, as war comes upon the land and they're carried away, they're going to hard work. They had twisted the good gifts of God. They had failed to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And now the good gifts were going to be replaced by thorns and briars. The dirt would be hard packed. The yoke they will bear will be heavy. They had a good, but no more. And in verse 12, we see this change and, and God pleads with his people. He pleads with them to repent, to turn back from their sinful way. Right? He says, so righteousness, so righteousness, reap mercy. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. Right? God calls them to know him. That's what this break up the follow ground for it is time to seek the Lord points to. They had failed to keep the covenant and God is calling them back to his covenant. And this is the thing. God is not calling his people to something new. When God calls them here to sow righteousness, to reap steadfast love, to break up their fallow ground, he is not calling them to something new, but he is telling them to do the very thing they should have done at first. Right? He's calling them back to their first love. Paul writing to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right? Paul says there, Paul writes and tells the Galatians, right? If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow the Spirit, you will reap eternal life or incorruptibility, right? And what God is calling the people to is not a new thing for us either. Though what is new in the new covenant is that we have been empowered by God, right? We begin being given a new heart to be able to do these things. So moral rightness. In the ESV, we have this translated here, right? Reap steadfast love. The, the steadfast love is the, the Hebrew word hesed, or this idea of covenantal love, right? So he says, sow righteousness and reap the covenantal love. Break up the fallow ground, right? Don't let your heart be hard. Don't let the soil of your heart be hard, but break it up. Don't be unable and unwilling to submit to God in his ways. It's not new here. Again, it's not new what the people were we're called to all along. This is what God is calling them to again. It's not new to us. It's what we're called to. And by the grace of God, we can walk in holiness before him. We can love him. Our hearts no longer need to be hardened. And this, brothers and sisters, is cause for rejoicing. 
right? The Lord has come and rained righteousness upon us. This is the coming of Christ. The hardened, compacted, intractable, sinful nature, which we could no more subdue than we could go outside right now and lift up the corner of this building by our own strength, right? That, that's what the sinful nature is. It's intractable. It's compacted. It's unable to be changed. That this is indeed changed by the grace of God. Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, right? We know this stuff. We need to hear it again and again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Or we could say it in the words of Hosea in Hosea 2, 21 through 23. Hosea 2, 21 through 23. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God makes for himself a people where there once was no people. And he causes sinful rebels to repent and walk in holiness before them. Those who were once alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus Christ now presents as one holy and blameless and above reproach before his Father. So be reconciled to God, friend. Be at peace with God forevermore. Break up the hard ground in your heart and let the refreshing rains of the grace and mercy and love of God penetrate to your very soul. Turn to Christ Jesus. And those of you who are in Christ, sow righteousness and reap covenant love. Not to earn your salvation. Not to appease God. But God has loved you so greatly. He has done so much for you. How could you not in love listen to him and follow in the ways of Christ Jesus? And if you think that's legalism, you've not been in love. God calls the people of Israel to seek him. But as we look at the cow and the plow, we turn now to the how. How will God deal with his people? The how in verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. Verse 12 really is a call to repent. God calls his people to repent. He calls them to turn from their ways. But, and this is the difficult, this is the, this is the hard part of Hosea. Is that as much as God wants them to repent, 
as much as God calls them to repent. He knows they won't. He knows that they will only turn from him. And it's like raising a child who you so desperately want to see excel and grow and do good. And the reality is that they only want to seek the next high, uh, whether that's heroin, fentanyl, meth, or what have you. Right? It's this seeing this child just go off into uh, depravity, debauchery, and destruction when what you want for them is, is good and joy and happiness. And notice, as we look at verse 13, we have kind of these, this threefold nature of what they're doing, right? You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. So instead of sowing righteousness, what are the people sowing? Iniquity or wickedness. Instead of reaping covenant love or mercy, what are they reaping? Injustice. Instead of breaking up the fallow ground and letting the rain of righteousness of the Lord uh, fill them and soak down into them, what, what do they have instead? What is their fruit of their ground? Well, the fruit of lies. Uh, and the idea here is probably something more like false fruit. In other words, uh, what they grow, it looks, it looks good. It looks like a good fruit. But if you bite into it, it's poison. Or it looks like a good fruit, but when you cut into it and open it, it's nothing but rottenness and maggots. It's false fruit. It's the fruit of lies. It's deceptive fruit. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The people have sown in their society, in their families, in their, in their religion, in their politics. They have sown in evil, wickedness, iniquity, sin. And should we expect them to reap anything but more of the same? If you put in garbage, you get garbage out. They haven't trusted in God. And it said they trusted in themselves, right? Look, look at the end of verse 13 there. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. The people thought they had it. And how will God deal with this overgrown and unproducing land? Verse 14. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Just as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel, and we all know that event. Now, actually, scholars don't know what that event is in reference to. We, we're not quite sure who Shalman is or where Beth Arbel is. But what we do know is this. In Hosea's day, when Hosea gave this example, the people would have said, oh, yeah, I know what happened then. And we actually get a little taste of what happened then at the end of the verse, right? Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Right? This is, this is devastation, right? This is destruction. 
This is what has happened, just like this happened, just as the fortress was destroyed, just as the mothers were dashed with their children, so too people of the northern kingdom of Israel, this is what is coming. The tumult of war is coming. You've sown iniquity. You've reaped iniquity. Now experience God's judgment. And further, look at this in in verse 15. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel. And let's just say here, right? What what do we know about Bethel? It's a place of great wickedness. So much so that even earlier in the book of Hosea, uh, Hosea calls it Beth-Avon, house of wickedness. Because Bethel is supposed to be house of God. And instead of God being there, it's wickedness there. So Bethel, you're going to be destroyed. Utter destruction. Because of your great evil. It's going to be done to you. Just like Shaman destroyed Beth Arbel, guess what? It's coming to you, Bethel. Just as the mothers were cut down. Just as the infants were pierced with the spear. So too you, Bethel, will experience this. And not only that, look at the end of verse 15. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. What's God saying? The king's not going to help you. We've already kind of seen that in in chapter 10, right? Where the people remark in 10 verse 3, For now they will say we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? Or we go to verse 7 of chapter 10 here, right? Verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. And the picture being painted there, right, is this idea of the, the king is utterly powerless. What is a twig able to do in the rush of waters? Go down to the river and watch the twigs. They can do nothing. They are carried along and they are powerless to stop what is happening to them. So too for the king. And at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Before the battle even begins in earnest, the king is going to be removed. The king is going to be cut off. Uh, He's going to be carried off. The king is utterly powerless. And he would do nothing to stop the war that is coming. He would do nothing to protect the peoples. The people I trusted in their multitude of warriors, and they're going to be destroyed for trusting in something that could never save them. God promises that we will reap what we sow. And do not be fooled, Paul rejoins. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can get away with your sin. Don't be fooled into thinking that your sin has no consequences. That's what the people of Israel have to learn. And that is what God is going to teach them. They have sown wickedness, evil, sinfulness, and they will reap destruction because of it. They failed to seek God. They failed to understand his ways. They failed to live in light of the covenant that he had made with their forefathers. And as a result, they would suffer the promise of the covenant. And what was the promise of the covenant? Not just for blessing, but for cursing, right? Not just for good, but for evil if they failed to follow in the covenant. In our own day, we have to realize that what we sow, we will also reap. 
If we sow to the flesh, as Paul writes uh, to the Galatians, we will reap corruption. If you live in the sinfulness of your flesh, if you live in your natural state, you will reap what is natural to that state, death. God's promise of his just wrath is sure. And every tree that does not produce good fruit, what does God do with it? Cut it down and throw it into the fire. So what are you sowing in your life? Right? What are you planting? Is it vanity? Is it corruption? Turn from that, friend, and turn to Christ. Again, Christ Jesus came to this place to save a people for himself, a people who are zealous for good works. He bore the wrath of God so that his people would never have to. Christ Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Save that alone, Jesus Christ. And Christian, I would ask you, what are you sowing in your life? What are you planting? What are you building? We don't often think about our lives in these terms, but every day we're building something into our life. Every day we're planting and sowing something in our families, in our marriages, in, in, in our lives. We are building into something. And what is it? Understand that if it is sin, if it's a life of unrepentant sin, God will discipline you. If you are really his, he will discipline you. He will be second to none. And he will chastise you in every way and any way to return you to himself. And what remains for you as you examine your life, and I would really encourage you to examine your life. What are you sowing? Are you sowing iniquity? Or are you sowing righteousness? If you're sowing iniquity, turn from those things and return to God. And pray to Him and ask Him for the forgiveness of your sins, but not just for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask Him to give you the spiritual strength you need, the Spirit's power to put to death the deeds of the body. And seek help from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You are not alone in this. We're all in the sin-killing business. And we all need help. And there is grace enough for you in Christ. Never forget that. Never forget that. So you may examine your life and you may see the fruit of what you have been building. And you may realize that it it is not what God would have for you. There is yet time to repent and turn from it. And understand that God's grace is sufficient. That may not wipe out the consequences of the sins in which we have been engaged in. Right? That may not wipe out the temporal uh, the, the temporary consequences. We don't have to fear the eternal consequences, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. But even as you examine your life and you see these things, there is still time to repent, to turn from them, to correct the course and seek help from your brothers and sisters in Christ to that end. There is grace enough for you in Christ. But Christian also so Righteousness. So good works. God has prepared beforehand for you good works. Ephesians 2.10. We know Ephesians 2. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of works, lest any should boast. We love that verse. But let us not forget verse 10. God has prepared good works for you. Be busy about them. 
Attend yourself to the works of Christ. Walk in his ways. And listen, you need help to do this too. That's why God calls together his people, the church. Right? So when we talk about the church, we're talking about a people, not a building, not a time of the week. We're talking about a people. God has given his people, uh, he has given gifts to his people, each other, brothers and sisters. You don't just need help to cut out the evil, but you also need help to build up the good. I need help to that end. And so what is the command of Scripture? Out of the book of Hebrews, let us stir one another. That word stir is something like agitate. Now, don't be annoying, right? I'm not saying that. But sometimes we need to be agitated. Sometimes we're, we are dull and cold to the reality of Christ, and we need to be agitated. So let's stir one another up to love and to good works. And from this, you will reap the rewards of heaven, right? Heavenly treasures, heavenly rewards. We don't do this for earthly rewards. Although God may be so gracious to give us such things. We work for heavenly rewards. Where there is no moth, there is no rust, there is no thief. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the grace to see and understand these things. Father, we pray for the grace to, to learn from your word, to learn from what has happened in the past, to learn from the examples that you have given unto us in our lives. Not that we may be intractable, not that we would be incorrigible and unable and unwilling to change. Not that we would hear these things and see these things and walk away unchanged. But Lord God, give us the grace that we would do the hard work of breaking up the hardened clay in our hearts. That we would do the hard work of sowing righteousness and reaping steadfast love. And Father God, we can do none of that unless you work in us, unless your spirit is at work in us, unless your spirit fills us, unless the, the work of Christ Jesus on the cross is not just an intellectual thing we know about, but it is the very reality, the very basis of our lives. Father, we can do none of these things unless you first renew and regenerate us. Oh God, help us. Father, be gracious unto us. And Lord God, we thank you that you are indeed gracious unto us and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That this is not your character grudgingly. But it is who you are joyfully. Father, help us. 
whatever state we find ourselves in, Lord, at whatever place that we're at, Lord, help us, please. Help us to repent and turn from our sin and turn to you. Help us, Lord, to do good works to the praise of your glory. Father, we ask, we pray, we plead for your mercy and grace in our lives. We ask that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is indeed your love. So, Father, speak that we may listen. Unstop our ears that we may hear. Remove the scales from our eyes that we may see. God, help us, we pray, in the name of Christ Jesus, our strong and mighty Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.